The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Greetings. Today I'll be offering up my opinion about the coming gold rush as well as my thoughts on investing in gold and silver stocks now. I'll speak with Ross Orr of Backtech Environmental on the cleaning up of toxic mercury and arsenic spills and tailings related to artisanal mining activities around Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru. I've recently joined the Backtech team as a consultant. Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech trading as ONCYF on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX discusses cancer-fighting solutions. And I'll speak with Eric Fear, the president of Silvercrest Metals, about their Las Chispas project in Sonora State, Mexico. Let's begin the program. I'm Ellis Martin. Almost four years ago, and then again about two years ago, I made and repeated a rare prediction. I stated that gold had no business being priced as high as it was, and that it should fall to about $900 an ounce to keep things just fair. Keep in mind that at one point it had risen to nearly $1,800 an ounce, if not higher, and the pundits those with actual so-called backgrounds in economics and commodities and other metals rock stars were pointing gold and silver much, much higher than that. They were all wrong, and I sensed it, and I knew it, and I told you about it, and I was mocked for doing so, and I didn't much care, really. I'm a journalist with an opinion, after all, covering the sector, walking about and hanging my hat in it for the past almost 20 years. Well, perhaps those folks, many of them friends, were not necessarily wrong. Their timing was just off. We never hit $900 gold, but we came darn, darn close. It's not that I wanted to be right. I just felt that the suppression of gold and silver had to follow the parabolic rise that we had been experiencing, that the rise to unseen heights was unrealistic, and the price had no business being where it was, overly inflated. All right. So what else is new? The mining industry, i.e. public companies in the sector, those good and bad, were practically beat down to nothing, with share prices dropping in some cases to valuations that just never made sense. Pennies on the dollar, while the price of gold and silver settled to prices that were near what we saw in, let's say, 2010. At that time, metal stocks were in most cases never as low as they have been a few months ago. Not even close. I'm referring to many of the juniors. A lot of them are gone now. The gap between the price of gold and silver and their relative share prices in companies, good or bad, was never as wide as it was in the late summer of 2015, not too long ago. Even now, the gap is substantial after a few weeks of excitement in the market. Gold and silver stocks are cheap. In mid-June of 2015, David Morgan and I did a segment on this program where we discussed a European bank run, again revolving around Greece to begin with, and fanning out from there, fueling a run on gold. 
This particular segment was widely received. A huge amount of listeners, unprecedented in years, not since my weekly chats with Jim Sinclair, who in 2011 was predicting astronomical gold prices that never materialized that year, as well as five major banks shutting down. Well, that never happened. While talk of a bank run quieted down for the time being, the gold run, or rush, did in fact begin shortly after summer vacation was over. Well, all right, maybe mid to late fall 2015, so I'm exaggerating just a bit. New lows were recorded for the metals. There was still blood in the streets. But those pocketing or stacking silver and gold did not relent. They've been accumulating the metal for a very long time. Banks and nation states as well. Individuals. Savvy gold and silver bugs. We should have all been accumulating cheap stocks from good junior, mid-tier, and major mining companies. We should have been. That's what folks such as Dudley Baker and David Morgan and others were saying and doing. That's what many of you were doing, but not most folks. A rise in stock prices is closing the gap now between metal prices as they also rise. But it's still a very wide gap, and these are very early days because talk of wealth and accumulating junior mining companies is not talk on the streets or the media yet. It's not talk. Only among us that follow the sector. We're talking about it more or less. But most of us aren't known by the masses or mainstream media. We feel something big, though. Are there legitimate market trend reasons for this new run? Yes and no. It's my belief that the gold runs, more specifically the mini parabolic runs of the 21st century, were created by a variety of power players merely for profit. These were entities that positioned themselves in the market with ETFs, bonds, metals, and stocks, took positions when prices were very low, and let's face it, gold was as low as $349 an ounce in 2001. Very cheap. Not too long ago. These were very intelligent and intuitive players that jumped in and then fomented the hype that brought everyone else in, yet only a small part of the overall investment community comparatively, getting us all very excited, building a parabolic run, and then, and then, and then cashing out. And this hype was built in large part on a collapsing Greek economy and or exit from the euro that had successfully come to rise at the turn of the century. Yes, Little Greece, a country with just 11 million people needing a bailout, was the cause of the spark of the gold run back then. Really? Yes, really. Why not? That's as good a story as you can concoct. Blame it on paradise. And everyone ran with it. And I never bought in it as a real reason for the collapse of the world financial system. And then that happened more or less in late 2007, early 2008. After a period of inflated abundance, the financial system collapsed, but the price of gold really didn't at that time. There were scores of companies that did not survive. Resource stocks fell but not to the lows they were at last summer. There was blood in the streets and death in the sector, but the world did not end. And the parabolic rise picked up again in 2010. It continued and continued. We were all very happy about this. But what were the reasons? An imminent collapse of the dollar? Well, that wasn't going to happen. It's not going to happen. And still there was talk of a failing, fading Europe and the collapse of the EU. These are good reasons, right? I don't know. In my opinion, and I live in the greater Hollywood area, it's a sequel to a movie. It's a sequel to a movie that was a huge success. It's another sequel, a Batman sequel, a Star Wars, Star Trek, Indiana Jones, The Hangover Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, Ad Infinitum. If it works once, try it again and again. A well-planned sequel is being orchestrated by many of the same players and, <clears throat> well, um, so-called natural market forces all at bargain basement prices. 
The opportunities that arose after a market collapse, the kind that we saw in metal commodities, were incredulous, cheap, and deals were done. Positioning took place, and these same players will fuel the hype, push the market, charm institutions, fund managers, and retail investors like it's never been done before, without any talk of a collapsing dollar, which, again, in my opinion, just isn't going to happen. We're not Venezuela or Argentina or Russia or China. We're just not. It will come down to this simple phrase, buy gold or buy silver. It will be the new biggest not-so-secret secret and pathway to wealth, parabolically. Perhaps, as I've discussed with guests on this program before, the biggest run we've ever seen in modern history. Is this the last run? Will it be a bubble? These are questions that we've pondered. Again, throughout the last 15 years, same questions, different year, different cycle. Same movie theme, same plot line, newer, more high-tech spin. Better computer graphics, more entertainment, more Hollywood, and don't think Hollywood won't get behind this. I'm seeing more fund managers and brokers get excited about gold again right here in Los Angeles. They are making money for themselves and their clients just in the last few months, and this is just the beginning of the latest sequel. What else have we got to do with ourselves? Where else can you put money and hope for a parabolic return? People by nature are greedy and impatient. We want massive returns now, and we don't want to wait. We're risk takers, and if we can afford to take the risk, we do it. Now that is the American way, and it's how fortunes are made. Yes, there are opportunities in real estate around the world. Yes, here in California, the Chinese are jumping in as they did in places like Vancouver, buying up the jewels around here, the investment properties, as all of that money exits China for safety. Yes, American real estate is a safe investment, but this leaves many of us out of the picture in that arena. It leaves traditional mom-and-pop investors out of the real estate market as prices are just too high. Again, look at Vancouver. Look at what is happening in Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco. But I digress. Gold and silver and platinum and palladium are in vogue. And these are early days in this round, this cycle, this sequel, or this series finale. What if it is the last big one, the last episode of the biggest TV show in history? The one that everyone is talking about, the breaking bad of gold cycles. We're all paying attention, and right up until the end, we're going to get gold and silver-plated accoutrements, knickknacks, gold-threaded shoelaces, wearing it proud, or simply stacking grams, ounces, bars. You better jump in right now when stock prices of gold and silver companies are incredibly cheap, and I'm not kidding. Now, I'm not allowed to recommend that you buy any particular stock. I can't tell you to buy any specific item. I can't. I won't. I often showcase suggestions, but that's all I do. I showcase suggestions. What I will say to you is this. It might be a very good idea to risk or buy whatever you can safely afford to lose and jump into as many mining stocks as you dare to. Build yourself a basket of them because everyone else is going to do it eventually in some capacity. I'm liberal with the use of the word everyone, but you catch my proverbial drift. Everyone will pile in and then at some point, those that set this sequel into play will sell off and the bubble will pop, and before that bubble pops, you can sense it and ease yourself out. How long will this run last? I don't know. I have no idea at all. But it's here, and it's coming hard. And then it'll be over, and I don't know what that over will look like, and I don't want to speculate. Will there be a nice afterglow, or will there be a world of regret? I suspect a little bit of both. Yes, Buy the mining sector and buy it smart. It will be a trader's market and a market for the long term. And I'm calling a long term really no longer than two to three years. 
you'll be able to profit as a trader and as a long-term player, depending on the stocks, of course. It would be wiser for you to invest in companies with solid management teams, folks that have done it before, have brought companies to success, companies with money in the bank and great assets, even better if they are near production or are currently producing. That's what we've been saying, and those are the companies that are doing well now. But, but, and I say but because it will happen. Cash is going to pile into companies that are nothing but smoke and mirrors, just like it's always been when a sector is hyped up. Can money be made with these charlatans? Probably in the short term in an inflated market. Is it right? Well, it's not safe, I tell you that. First money in is usually first money out, and it can happen very fast. Eventually, any company with a good-looking website or a brochure or a story will be a target for investment for those that aren't really doing their homework. But play it safe. Look for the good fundamentals and get in. This round, this sequel, this Batman versus Superman event will make us forget the past, the past failings of the sectors, the past losses and gains. This will be what we all talk about after it's over and on the way up and out. During the last cycle or peak of 2011-2012, less than one half of 1% of investors were involved in resource stocks. What happens if that jumps to 1%? 5% or 10% and the physical supply for the metals will never keep up with the demand. It never really has, no matter what the prices have been. What will happen then? If you're not in, think about getting in. If you've been waiting, now's probably the time. Get smart, get smarter, get educated, read, listen. And as I've said many times, do your own homework, build a knowledge of the sector, build your fundamental knowledge, Build your intuition. Trust your learned instincts and gut. Invest only what you can afford to lose. But let's face it. Look at all the other junk we buy. Junk that we have to replace over and over again. Buy smart. Buy as safe as you can. But buy gold and silver. Not just the metals, but good companies. I cannot be any more specific than that. Even though often I'm a paid journalist, which means I'm being paid to expose a company to my audience, this segment is non-company specific. It's unsponsored and merely a recommendation from me, a journalist with an opinion, someone who's been involved in this sector in one form or another for almost 20 years. doesn't mean I'm an expert necessarily. It just means that I've a certain feel for things, like you do for whatever you've been pondering or involving yourself with for the last 20 years. How did we wind up here? We just did. It's as simple as that. Perhaps instead of, or in addition to upgrading your phone, laptop, TV, or living room furniture, toss a few bucks into gold and silver stocks. Perhaps. I'm Ellis Martin, and this is Only My Opinion. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Ross Orr, president of Backtech Environmental. Trading on the OTC is BCCEF, and on the CSE, the Canadian Stock Exchange, as BAC. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas resulting from abandoned mining operations. Backtech's core technology called bioleaching employs naturally occurring bacteria harmless to both humans and the environment to oxidize the sulfide materials left behind after years of mining. I should note that I've joined the company as a consultant and I'm a shareholder of Backtech Environmental. 
Ross, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. You and I just visited in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, not too long ago, at the Prospector and Developers Association of Canada, what we refer to the acronym as PDAC. There were some new developments that relate specifically to BackTech. Why don't you tell us all about it? Correct. As your listeners might remember, we're following the trail of mercury in predominantly Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, and the use of mercury as a, an amalgamator in the gold processing industry for artisanal miners. We were fortunate to sit down with Dr. Marcelo Vega, whom I understand you'll be interviewing at some time in the future, to raise the profile of this problem in South America and in developing countries in general. It exists also in Africa and other places. So he's agreed to come on board as an advisor to us and help us identify locations in Ecuador where he's had a hand in building flotation plants for processing this difficult arsenopyrite type of ore that we like for bioleaching. Now, to be clear, Dr. Vega is a esteemed professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and he is turning out people year after year who are uh, becoming involved in the sector. True? Correct. His whole mandate, or mantra, for lack of a better word, is to convince these artisanal miners that the best way to get gold out of difficult rock is not by using mercury to amalgamate it, but to actually use what they call flotation, where you literally float the sulfides away from the rock. The sulfides have all the value. They also have all the arsenic. What's happened, of course, is that you've now created a very high-grade gold content, but also a very, very high arsenic content. And that product becomes tricky to sell is the best way to put it without paying a lot of penalties from the buyer so what he has done is convinced the artisanal miners that the use of flotation or separating the sulfide ores away from the host rock now that's a great idea the problem is of course that you have very high gold levels but you also have very high arsenic levels and this makes the product very very difficult to sell on to a smelter or refiner because of the penalty elements that are involved So none of this has stopped when we're talking about mercury poisoning and arsenic poisoning and bad mining practices. They're going on. They've never stopped, and it's at an artisanal level. These are small folks just making a living. How are you going to change their way of thinking? By paying them more. Right now, they're getting as little as 10 cents on the dollar for concentrates that have values of over $6,000 a ton. And it's predominantly the Chinese who buy this material and take it to China for processing over there, where maybe they don't pay as much attention to the world rules on the amount of arsenic that can be burned in a smelter. So you, as in Bactech, is going to be paying them more for what they're delivering out of the ground, and you're also going to make sure that the poisoning stops. Yeah. As I've said many times in the past, one of the main benefits of bioleaching is the ability to produce a ferric arsenic, which is a U.S. EPA-approved material for landfill. Again, I always say not that we would do that. But historically, of all the 20-odd plants of bioleach plants that have been built in the world, arsenopyrite is the one common element that they process. What's going on in Bolivia and Ecuador specifically that Bactech is considering taking on? Well, the long story in Bolivia hopefully is coming to a close. We've been trying to sign a contract for well over a year and a half now with Comibol, who's the state mining company, and it's been frustrating to say the least. We did have the opportunity to spend an hour with the Minister of Mines, who would be, I guess, the superior to the Comibol at PDAC. It was arranged by the Canadian government, 
and we sat down for an hour and very forcefully made our opinions known as to our dissatisfaction with the fact that this contract has not been signed. It's funny, I'm actually expecting a call today from the minister to tell me what day we will go down to sign. So we'll see if that happens. Does he know we're talking about this on the radio? I doubt it. Why is it such a challenge to bring industry-wide awareness to this problem? What is keeping you from raising all the money you need to raise to begin the remediation of these assays all over the world? Well, there's the $64,000 question. You were at you saw the responses of people with whom I spoke regarding our plans for Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, etc. Everybody says, wow, what a great idea. And I say, so I can sign you up? And they say, oh, no, no, I don't have any money or it's not the right market or, or come back to me after you've built the first one. And it's always the same. The first one's the most difficult one. Even though we've built three plants elsewhere in the world, they were for mining operations. Now we're looking at basically tailings in Bolivia and, of course, this anti-mercury crusade in the gold industry in Ecuador and Peru. I wish I had the answer, Ellis. It's been extremely difficult to raise the day-to-day money, but the project money falls out of the trees. It's like fast-in, fast-out money. They'll lend you the money for the plant, but they want it back within two years. And they want a high interest rate, and they want an NSR, and they want warrants, et cetera, et cetera. So you've had those opportunities. You just have elected to keep them out of your company for obvious reasons. Well, you have to walk before you run. And there's no sense me talking to anybody about debt financing a plant when I have to raise the capital first to do all the necessary test work that has to be done to determine whether or not it is, in fact, a bio-leach candidate or not. We mentioned Peru in a previous broadcast. Don't you have a joint venture there with a company called Duran Resources in northern Peru? I have a memorandum of understanding with Duran Ventures, who are in the process of building a 100-ton-a-day sulfide plant near Trujillo. I actually think that it'll start to begin the commercialization process, which is sort of working out the kinks as early as two weeks from now, maybe mid-April. Once they are up and running, the goal, of course, is then to expand that 100-ton-a-day plant to 350 tons a day, with the extra capacity being used to produce our pyrite concentrates. We will build a bio-leach plant at the site of Durand. What is the benefit to Bactech for all this effort on your part? A, mercury reduction, again, because they do it in Peru as well as in, in Ecuador. And B, making more money for ourselves. How are you making more money for yourselves? Basically, we're making money because we're going to be buying, again, under the same process as we use in Ecuador, paying the miners more money to deliver their product to us. For processing. Doesn't that make you, in a sense, more or less a gold producer? Yeah, it does, actually. I mean, we'll be able to identify, I would say, in Ecuador with a 40 ton a day plant, probably close to 40,000 ounces a year of production. And I would think that's probably going to be a little bit larger in Peru. So to reiterate, technically, you will be in many aspects a gold producer and and perhaps not too far away from this point. It's all speculation. We don't have that locked in gold yet. You do have a memorandum of understanding, but it hasn't taken place yet, but it's likely to. I would hope so. I mean, or else I'm wasting my time coming to work every day. The reality is we're sort of de-risking mining. We don't have to run around and drill holes in the ground. Somebody else is going to be bringing it to our front door where we will then assay and pay them on the spot and then take... I guess the only risk that we take on is we control that gold in our hands for, say, 30 days, and we would be subject to the fluctuations in the price of gold. But it would have to take a miraculous collapse to hurt us. I mean, we make money at $500 gold based on our models. So your production costs, essentially, for an ounce of gold will be probably $500 an ounce. Well, I would say that if you break it down to the actual different 
components. So our costs are broken down into components of $50 a ton for flotation, $200 for bioleaching, so $250, and then another $50 for plus or minus, and so $300 a ton is our operating cost. Could that happen this year or next year? It really is a function of being able to raise the capital to identify the opportunities and deal with the test work side of it. We've identified through Dr. Vega, an engineer in southern Ecuador, northern Peru, who has a long history in the area. He is going to be approaching the flotation plants that Marcelo Vega is responsible for building over the last 10 years and identify how much arsenopyrite actually is produced on a daily basis from those plants. And then we would negotiate to deal with them on a one-to-one basis. Our goal is to get to 40 tons a day of concentrate under contract. It just makes financing the plant that much easier if you have a contractual engagement. So in that essence, your share price right now and your share structure could be very conducive for those that may want to consider getting involved in your company right now. I use an example with some of my closer friends that I talk to. In our stocks, two to three cents Canadian, something like that. I said, if you can buy 100,000 shares at two cents to three cents, you're gambling two to $3,000 because in a year's time, it'll either be worth nothing or it'll be worth $100,000 based on production or lack thereof. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. You recently brought on Dr. Vega and myself as consultants to Backtech. Let's explain to our audience why that decision was made, at least on your part. First of all, the public knowledge of this problem, of this mercury-related problem in South America especially, is not well known. So one of the things that we all discussed when we met at PDAC was, how do we raise the knowledge level for the average guy on the street to understand this is a big problem? I believe that there are two major rivers that come out of Ecuador that go into Peru that are dead. There's no fish. Keeping in mind that the people down in Peru are using this water for their fields and it's got arsenic in it and it's got mercury in it. It's atrocious. So from my point of view, because I like to use you as a partner going forward to spread the word about what you're doing, I'm hoping that you'll be interviewing Dr. Vega at some point in time as well to at least educate your readers or listeners to the problem. Well, we certainly want to shine a light on this problem and end it if possible, or at least put a major dent in it, potentially save lives because it goes into the food chain and the miners and their children and their families, the villages, everybody's affected by it. And as you said, these rivers are dead. So it'd be good to involve ourselves in that and turn it around. Ross, I'll be speaking with Dr. Vega very, very soon on this program and we will hear his take and his passion on why he's involved. And of course, the opportunities available for everyone. Excellent. Spread the word. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program, Ross. My pleasure, Ellis. I've been speaking today with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental, trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange with a CSE as BAC. That symbol again is BAC. And on the OTC as BCCEF. Find Backtech's logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and click through to their website. You can download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. Backtech is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mine by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Eric, welcome back to the program. You've just released news announcing the rehabilitation of Silvercrest Las Chispas Mine in Sonora State, Mexico. What exactly does this mean? What it means is it's all part of our exploration plan. 
And this was the plan for 2016, was to get in underground, start mapping and sampling. We need to fully understand the beast that's in front of us. It's a big system. I actually was down on site a couple weeks ago. I spent two days walking a lot of the underground and the surface, and I only got to see about quarter of the district. So this is a lot bigger than I had even imagined. You know, you need to have management boots on the ground to really appreciate these things. And I was there and now we got a team of guys and a crew underground. They're cleaning it out. There's over six kilometers of underground workings of which we got about two kilometers access to currently. We've done quite a bit of sampling. These are the first results that we announced this morning from underground. So some pretty impressive grades that are already being established as potential. Really can't say near term because it has to be fully evaluated, but when you're dealing with these type of systems, this is an underground project right now. Since you have a lot of access to it, you can go in, you can sample these things, and if you can get three sides sampled, then you can start talking about potential reserves. When you're talking about reserves, it means they're economic, and then you can start producing from those reserves. Right now at Las Chispas, that would be pretty small. There is no processing facility on site. So the attempt, if you did want to extract a small amount of tons right now, you'd have to process it somewhere else. If you recall, the story was to process this material at the Santa Elena mine, which was under uh, Silvercrest Mines. Now it's Silvercrest Metals as part of that merger with First Majestic. So there are some backroom discussions ongoing and have since we did the merger about the potential to process Las Chispas tons at Santa Elena. So we'll see how that evolves. You certainly can't displace the feed that's going into Santa Elena from its operation unless it was economically attractive to both parties and certainly to First Majestic if they were handling the ore from Las Chispas. Things are pretty close. This is 45 minutes an hour drive, mostly pavement, to get to Santa Elena from Las Chispas. So it is attractive and if you got smaller high-grade tons that are immediately available from our ongoing rehabilitation and looking at it from an exploration standpoint, then this could be attractive toward the end of this year for Sparta next year. You say the resource is underground, but let's be clear with regard to our listening audience. This was a mine in operation closing in 1930. You've got shafts, you've got tunnels, places with easy access. Once you find the resource, the silver, it should be fairly easy to move it over to wherever you're going to mill it, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Historically, the mines in the district, it's called the Los Chispas Project, so no one gets confused. And Los Chispas vein is one of the many veins that's on the project. We have access to quite a few of these veins already. If you are looking at the news release that we put out this morning, some of those higher grade intercepts that you see are very close to the portal. There's a portal that runs horizontally into veins and you're anywhere from 50 to 100 meters from pulling that material out. This is low hanging fruit stuff and delivering it to surface ready to be processed at, again, a facility that we don't have on site. So you'd have to either toll mill it or sell it to other facilities that are nearby. Actually, the grades are listed in the news release itself and they seem quite high. Well, the average 
production grade historically between 1880 and 1930 was about 15 grams per ton gold and 1,700 grams per ton silver, 1.7 kilos per ton. This would be absolutely the highest grade mine in Mexico that I know of if you had some substantial amount of tons that you could pull into a resource and then a reserve. I could only aspire to get those kind of grades. Right now, there is mines that are producing in Mexico in the 600 to 700 grams per ton type numbers well, from a silver equivalency standpoint. But anything above that would definitely be the highest grade tons that would be produced in Mexico. So my target is to establish some resources conservatively around the two to 300 gram per ton from a silver equivalent standpoint and get enough tons to either build a mill or economically be attractive enough to process it either at Santa Elena or at Yamana's mine, which is also pretty close to Las Chispas, the Mercedes mine. How are you going to be able to determine how much ore is in the ground or does it not matter at first? Well, we need to better understand the system. You had to appreciate that this project has had no eyes on it for over 80 years. It was locked up in a legal battle for several years. There were a couple companies that came in during the 1990s and the early 2000s to try to do a deal. They were unable to do it because of the legal disputes on it. Therefore, not much attention was paid to the project. We were able to negotiate over the last two years to settle the legal issues and to basically tie up most of that district. And now the effort is going to be to fully evaluate it geologically and from an economic standpoint. It'll give us 2016 to really see if there's going to be a substantial discovery there. You got to get in and you got to sample these things. It's just very fortunate that we have a lot of access already. If you tried to build the Las Chispas right now in six kilometers of underground workings, I mean, we're already talking 10 to 20 million dollars in today's value that's already established for access to the deposit. That's quite attractive right there. We got a big leg up to get access. So you go in and you sample these things underground and you do some drilling. The drilling could be from surface or underground. And this is the guidelines you need in order to establish, number one, a resource, and then put some metallurgy to it, look at your permitting, and establish a reserve and see if you have an enough of a mass in order to either build your mill or ship it off-site. No one would spend that kind of money, $20 million, to develop a system in this environment. Would anybody do it? I don't think so. Like I said, this is very similar to the history behind when we did the discovery at the Santa Elena mine for Silvercrest mines. There was over a kilometer of underground workings there. We negotiated that deal in 2005, and we announced our first discovery there in 2006 within 12 months of closing that deal. So we're just trying to do it again, Ellis, uh, with Las Chispas. We had great access at Santa Elena. You could get underground. You could see it. You could sample it from underground. We drilled 19 holes. We declared our uh, first discovery at Santa Elena, and it got the market's attention. We just want to do that again. Any chance you'll parlay this out to someone like First Majestic or Yamana, anyone else down the road, or would you stay in as a producer? 
Well, throughout my 30 plus years of experience now, you can fantasize about that, but you have to be willing to move forward with this site that you're going to put it into production. And then it just becomes too attractive and someone's got to take it. And if they're going to take it, they're going to pay for it. And that's great for our Silvercrest shareholders. Or you're prepared to put it into production and you do it. And we did that at Santa Elena. Had a lot of success in doing that. I'm ready to do that at Las Chispas again. I'm a shareholder of Silvercrest. So I'm out there to protect the shareholders. I got a lot of skin in the game. And if the deal's too good to be true from someone wants to purchase Las Chispas, then come at it and see if we can negotiate. Speaking of shares, what's the share structure like for this company? Just under 40 million shares out right now. Of that, 50%, we pretty much know where it's at. The other 50% came with the Silvercrest Mines and First Majestic merger. It is from a retail standpoint, and some institutions, actually quite a few institutions, stayed in after that merger. So they come with that 50% that has kind of a question mark on it. But management itself has about 15% of the current ownership in the company. Institutionally, we're at about 18%. When can we expect to see more news? We're going to start our drilling program here probably within one to two weeks, so just call it mid-March. And it takes a month to six weeks to start getting results. So I'd look for the next news release on Las Chispas probably mid-April, and that's when you'll start seeing what we're hitting from a drilling standpoint. I may have a news release out before that just to update everybody on the rehabilitation and any more significant intercepts that we're sampling underground and continuity. It's really going to come down to now telling the story how it develops and really what this beast is going to look like as we continue to do mapping sampling. There is an event that's going to occur in March for us at Las Chispas. We're going to open up a part of an area that hasn't been looked at for 80 years. And this area was specifically developed in the late 20s. And from the historic reports that we've read, a lot of it didn't get mined, but the infrastructure is already in place. So that could be an exciting event as we open up those workings and get into them and start sampling and mapping. And There could be some immediate high-grade tons out in front of us. I could only hope that we have some really high-grade stuff like was previously produced out in front of us, and then you're going to stand there scratching your head, well, what are we going to do with this? You know, there's immediate value, and that's when you start knocking on First Majestic or Yamana's doors to see if they want to treat it. That could happen in 2016. No promises. I don't know. Is it possible that when you open up something like that, you can get an immediate idea of what you might find just by looking? Well, we already have a good idea on one of the veins because we have the mine maps historically when they were about ready to shut down. So it's already in the history books, in our history books, and we've ground-proof that map that we have now, and it's pretty much exactly as it is on the historic map. This map is from the 1920s. So of the two kilometers we have access to right now, we've proofed that map, and it's proven 100% correct so far. So I think we know what's out in front of us. It's just getting into it, taking a look at it, making sure it's safe to work in the area, 
and then it all comes down to sampling it, put volumes around it in ounces and see if it works out. So this would potentially be a great time if you're sitting on the fence to consider investing in Silvercrest, if you're looking for a company that's about to become a producer in this interesting market. I'm an investor too, Ellis, and when I go out to look at investments, I put them in proven management, which Silvercrest Metals has. Good, solid projects that are not crippling the company with huge payments or huge NSRs. We don't have any of that out in front of us. The acquisition cost for Los Chispas is $4 million over three to five years. I kind of give a range there because Los Chispas is in several different land packages. So negotiated with those families that were under legal dispute in order to settle that. But I've paid about $50,000 so far to take a look, and I'm not committed to pay any more if I don't like what I see over the next year. We'll spend about a million to $1.2 million this year to evaluate and look for a discovery. And it's got to make economic sense to me in order for it to be a discovery. There's proven management, no huge commitment by the company. You're in a great jurisdiction. I still love working in Mexico. Same time zone we're in most of the year. Those are easy to manage. I can fly down and be on site the same day from Vancouver. All important things, great infrastructure, good people, good communities that understand what you're doing. The leg up we have with Las Chispas is we've already established ourselves with a very good reputation in the area, having discovered studied, financed, constructed, and had free cash flow when we did the merger with First Majestic on Santa Elena, which is in the same neighborhood. Eric, I've enjoyed our conversation. Once again, thanks for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks very much. For new listeners to the program, we're always getting new listeners every week. Please explain your proprietary real license technology. How does what essentially is a virus possibly treat cancer? 
Well, this particular virus deals with cancer in two different ways, in a sequential way. The first thing it does is that it infects pretty much every cell in your body, but only uh, reproduces and kills cells that have a certain genetic profile that is associated with cancer. And so you can think of this sort of stealthy virus going around your entire body and it infects everything. And uh, when it hits the right signature genetically, which is cancer, it'll reproduce itself and kill that cancer uh, in a few days. And it's quite on-off. It's very marked. That first action actually causes a secondary immune response, which is probably responsible for the longer-term effects that we see. So we really do believe that this virus is very unique and has a very unique mode of action that, to help us combat cancer. How many different types of cancers have been treated or are currently being treated under your clinical trial programs? We've looked at 13 cancers formally, and then you have another half a dozen or so cancers with patients that have come into our early studies, which are more or less all comer studies to, to take a look at safety. So we're getting a very good sense of you know where the agent works and where it doesn't work. Of course, nothing works on everything. And that's a really important tool for us going forward as we look forward to finishing off you know the development of, of this particular product. Now, I took a look at your website, and of course, clinical trials are listed on the website. And you are currently, according to my observation, treating or at least undergoing clinical studies for myeloma. Explain what myeloma is and what your status is as far as completing these studies are concerned beginning new ones? Well, you have a whole large family of different types of cells in, you know, floating around in your bloodstream. And many of them are produced in your bone marrow and some are produced in places like your spleen. And each one of those cells has a different function and they do different things. Some combat disease in a couple of different ways. Some carry oxygen, some scavenge waste byproducts and so on and so forth. And the type of cells that cause multiple myeloma are actually part of the immune system. They produce actually antibodies, which are an integral part of the immune system. And they're mostly found in the bone marrow. That's where most of their home is. So multiple myeloma is a disease of those cells. It's a quite a serious disease. Patients have very poor outcomes. They tend to die. Most of them die within five years. And it's a serious problem. One of the sort of odd side effects of it is, is that the antibodies that are produced by these cells are malformed when they go cancerous. And so when they come out through your kidneys and into your urine, they can cause a lot of damage into your kidneys. So you actually quite often see patients that have, have kidney malfunction. So real life, and fortunately for us, this virus actually gets into the bone marrow. In our early studies, uh, we've actually shown that the majority of those myeloma cells are actually infected by this virus and killed by this virus. And it's quite remarkable. I have to say, I and mean, quite unexpected. We're very pleased to see this very large thing called a virus would actually get into your bone marrow and do what it's doing. And so what we're doing is several early stage studies where we're looking at combining our product with other existing products that are out there. There's two products called proteasome inhibitors that we're combining it with and a third one out of a drug class that people are calling IBITs now. They're solidamide derivatives that is about to start. And that will all lead to, we expect, a, you know, a final phase three registration study looking at real and in combination with some combination of drugs to treat multiple myeloma. It's very exciting for us. It's our first foray into non-solid tumors, if you want to think of it that way. And the results to date have been actually been quite, quite clear-cut and quite definitive. Now, unexpected early osteoporosis can indeed be a sign of myeloma. If you see signs of that in yourself or in someone else, should you get it checked out for possible myeloma or what's usually the procedure? This seems like it's a new category of diagnosis. 
Fortunately for us, multiple myeloma is actually one of the easier cancers to diagnose. I mean, some cancers are very difficult to diagnose. I mean, if you, we talked about pancreatic cancer before, I mean, the early stages of pancreatic cancer are akin to having, you know, an upset tummy or you're feeling a little off that day or your digestion doesn't feel quite right. By the time you get in and get it checked out for specifically for cancer, it's spread and it's too late. And the pancreas and the pancreas head, as we call it, is in an odd place in your body. It's kind of shielded by everything. So it's not that easy to get to. So there's lots of reasons that cancers like pancreatic cancer get diagnosed late. Multiple myeloma is different that way. I mean, there's a couple of very easy signals. You can do a, a bone marrow tap, which sounds aggressive, but compared to major surgery to get to a tumor is really easy. And you just do a smear on a microscope slide and take a look at it. And you can tell instantly if a person's got multiple myeloma. And the other signal is that there's this abnormal protein that's excreted in the urine. So you can just do a urine test, which is marvelous. And fortunately for us, a lot of the other cancers are heading towards that direction. I mean, we're getting to the point now where we can do some cancer diagnosis by blood tests, which is easy and routine. And then that's also going towards urine tests. And I mean, the Diagnostics people that work in, in diagnostics are performing miracles and moving us up the chain to getting earlier and earlier diagnosis. And I mean, that's where a lot of the real progress is being made in our business. So pretty soon we're going to have urine tests for most common cancers. And then how easy is that? And I think they're just going to get routine tests and people just get them done routinely, whether they have symptoms or not, which is exactly where we want to go. But right now, multiple myeloma is kind of a tip of the iceberg of the good side. If you go look for it, you'll find it without too much difficulty. In a previous broadcast, we spoke about pancreatic cancer, which by all means can be fatal and most often is. And of course, now we're talking about myeloma. You don't take the easy subjects, do you? Real life is interesting in a way is that the genetic defects that cause realizing to be able to replicate are more common and more aggressive cancers. And a further complication is that you progress through the cancer therapy sequence. So what we call first-time patients are treated. Second line is when they failed first line and they get treated again with something else. As you go through all those lines of therapy, you actually enrich for those genetics that actually allow this virus to do their you know, do its business. And they're already enriched in what we call metastatic disease, which is disease when it's spread beyond the primary tumor. And so diseases that are very aggressive and tend to other therapies, as time goes by, actually are more suitable to be used with this particular agent. So there's that logic or a rationale for us to be uh, going after those cancers. But yes, it is unusual for us you know, to see a company focusing on cancers that tend to be intractable by most other therapies. Of course, I know there's many people listening to the program that perhaps have been diagnosed or they know someone that's been diagnosed with a serious form of cancer, not that cancer is not serious in any category, for the very first time. And they're listening to this program and they're thinking, well, okay, how do I know that I have the best access to this kind of care? Even though you're undergoing clinical trials right now, the real license per se isn't available for everyone at the moment because it's still being tested. So what would you say to those folks? For any exploration of therapy and not just for real license, but for anybody's new underdevelopment therapies, for people to go to a marvelous website that's called clinicaltrials.gov, G-O-V, and there's a listing of most, if not all, clinical studies ongoing in the United States, and you can actually search by terms. You can search type in pancreatic cancer, or you can type in real license if you're interested in a specific thing. And you'll come up with all the existing, if in the pancreatic cancer, all the existing clinical trials that are enrolling or their status, and it gives you contact points. And it allows patients and the doctors treating those patients the ability to seek out these new experimental therapies while they're under development. 
and it's unique in the world. It's a very impressive capability tool for patients and for doctors to use to find new therapies that are not yet approved for their patients and for the patients themselves to find them for themselves. Let's talk about Oncolytics Biotech as a potential investment vehicle for those of us who like to do smart things with their money. When one of these trials is successfully completed and you can say Reolicin can successfully treat this particular form of cancer, whether it's melanoma, whether it's breast cancer, whether it's cervical cancer, pancreatic cancer, any of those things. When is it a company maker? When does everyone begin to look at Oncolytics Biotech in multiples of 10 or 100 times of where it's at now? There's a number of events in biotech companies that add value in the marketplace and tend to add lasting value in the marketplace. And the first is clear-cut evidence in what we call randomized clinical study. So when you have two or more groups of patients being treated, one of which gets the current standard of care and the other one gets the current standard of care with your agent added in. And so the experiment is adding in that agent and you compare those two groups. So the first clear-cut evidence coming out of a randomized clinical study is really one of the major very first lasting additions to value in the marketplace. And we have five randomized phase two studies, reading out data in the next year, and we're starting several more this year. So you have those potential inflection points to give you value. The second major point of inflection is when people are actually in phase three studies. When companies tend to announce they've actually started a phase three study or a registration study, depending on their terminology, that is another inflection point. And Oncolytics is in the planning process right now for at least two phase three programs that we hope to have filed and approved this year. The third point is always product approval. That's a little while off for us yet. But you know, when people file for product approval and get product approval, that's always an inflection point, however they do it, because there's a variety of ways of doing it before products are approved and after products are approved. But on first product sales, that's really the last major inflection point for getting those big multiples of valuation. So there's really those four things to look out for. And for Oncolytics, the ones to look out for in the earlier term are randomized clinical data out of phase twos and the initiation of a phase three study. In summary, what are we going to see this year in that regard? Well, we should see data out of those randomized phase two studies, most of them this year, and there's five of those. We should also see one and possibly two phase three studies approved and announced in this calendar year. So we should see quite a bit of news flow. I'm certainly hoping so. I mean, news flow is, of course, the lifeblood of publicly traded companies, period, but biotech companies in particular, and more a matter of circumstance rather than direct planning. We happen to have that happy circumstance for 2016 and early 2017. It's quite a bit of news flow. You're one of the busiest CEOs I speak to on this program. You're constantly on the road. You're based in Calgary. Why are you traveling so much? Well, Calgary is a wonderful place, and I look at the Rocky Mountains every day when I get up and I walk to work, and I'm in the Rockies quite a bit. I spend a lot of my childhood in the mountains, and that's home turf, and that's really why we're in Calgary is because I love the mountains. Calgary is not a center of, of biomedical research or pharmaceutical you know, activity. You can literally count all the biotech companies in Calgary on your left or right hand, not both of them. So for us to do research and to do clinical trials, I mean, we've done clinical trials in 13 or 14 countries over the lifetime of the company, mostly in Europe and North America, and having shareholders scattered across the planet all leads you to being on a plane a lot of the time. So, you know, I have to touch base at the clinical sites, touch base with our researchers, which are scattered across the world, also touch base with my shareholders 
shareholders who are scattered largely across the world as well. And that leads to a lot of airplane time. My biggest domestic airline, which is Air Canada, gets a lot of my uh, travel dollars. And a little disturbing when you know all the flight crews and we talk about each other's dogs and children and how such and such doing in their school program and things like that. But that's the result of living in a place that doesn't necessarily have a lot of activity in it. Considering how busy you are, how are you feeling all the questions that you must be getting from around the world concerning Oncolytics Biotech? We have an active outreach program. We investor relations and public relations activities in Europe and Canada and the United States primarily. And we try to answer as many or all of the comments and questions that are the directed as uh, the other direction as well. It's a large effort, but it's a commitment on our company to try to interact with everybody that wants to interact with us and we either seek them out or they seek us out. That's one of the actually the more enjoyable parts of the business is, is interacting with both investors, interested parties and patients and patient inquiries. You know, when you get up in the morning, that's the part of the day that actually drives pretty much everybody in the company to feel good about their day is those kind of interactions. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I think we learned something new each time we chat. Thanks for joining us today on the program. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 